3: Available front-row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to get our recipes, to stream our television show, or to get our latest cookbooks. Here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball.
4: We have purpose in life. If you don't have a purpose, then you tend to be more cynical. And When you're fulfilling a purpose, you, you enjoy your life more.
3: That was John Mackey, CEO of Whole Foods Market, also the co-author of Conscious Capitalism and the Whole Foods Diet. I'll chat with Mackey later in the show about the Whole Foods merger with Amazon, also his philosophy of a healthy life. Before we get to my chat with John Mackey, we're heading to a hotel in Dawson, Canada, for a Halloween beverage, the Sour Toe Cocktail. Served at the hotel's bar since 1973. It has a bizarre garnish, a dehydrated toe preserved in salt, that is said to have belonged to a miner named Louis Lichen, who had this frostbitten appendage amputated in the 1920s. Recently, however, the toe went missing. Reporter Misha Warbansky went all the way to the Yukon to report on this story. Misha, how are you? I'm good, Chris. How are you doing? I'm good. Uh, the saying goes, you can drink it fast, you can drink it slow, but the lips have got to touch the toe. Uh, why, I, I hate to ask, but what is a toe cocktail?
5: A toe cocktail is, in fact, a human toe cocktail, and it's a, a staple quirk of the Dawson City summer tourist scene.
3: So you interviewed Terry Lee. Who Who is Terry Lee, and what did you have to say?
5: Uh, so Terry Lee is a longtime uh, Dawsoner. Um, he loves telling the mythology of the toe and the story of how it came to be So when um, the Stampeders were making their way across the Chilcoot Trail, a lot of them were coming up from California, and uh, a lot of them brought sourdough uh, starters with them on the trail so that they could uh, make fresh bread every day. So this got into the local vocabulary. So people that had spent a full winter in the gold fields were known as sourdoughs and the newcomers were called chichacos. So when people come to town to Dawson, everyone is uh, is keen to become a sourdough as quickly as possible. And so the downtown hotel has found a way to, to let newcomers uh, prove that they have what it takes.
3: The thing that was interesting is that there have been a number of toes, I think over a dozen Where did the original toe come from?
5: So the original story of the toe dates back to Prohibition. There was two brothers, Otto and uh, Louis Lichen, and they were gold miners uh, in the summertime, and they found a way to make some money in the off-season through Prohibition, and they would uh, run overproof rum over the border into Alaska. One of the brothers, Louis, was uh, was making a run for the Alaska border with a load of overproof rum, and he was heading up uh, Miller Creek, and he broke through the ice and got his foot wet, but he continued on his way. By the time he got back, his big toe on his right foot was completely frozen solid, and uh, his brother recommended that before it became gangrenous, they'd better cut it off. And so, as the story goes, off came the toe, and uh, for some reason, they put it into a mason jar full of overproof rum and uh, sat it up on a shelf. And uh, there it stayed in this old miner's cabin um, until it was discovered in the 1970s and, uh, and brought to town as a, a, a curiosity from the gold rush.
3: So what are the rules? You go into the bar, and in order to become a member of this club, I guess, what do you have to do?
5: All right. So this last year, uh, 10,000 toes were served, which was pretty unprecedented. And there's a club of about 78,000 individuals that have touched the toe with their with their lips. It's kind of a bit of a ritual. So uh, Terry Lee, the toe master, <laughs> he, uh, he really looks the part in his... Uh, his captain's hat and he has a silver platter and um, a container full of rock salt and the toe is nestled in this rock salt.
3: So um, tell me the story of the missing toe. So earlier this summer,
5: there was an individual who had actually done the toe and gone through the ritual and had their name written in the register. And later in the evening after, you know, an evening's revelries was back at the bar and wanted to do the toe again. And uh, he even apparently said to the, the bartender at the time that he was, his intent was to steal the toe and, Needless to say, the bartender poured the drink and uh, turned her back for a few moments to attend to another customer in the busy bar. And sure enough, uh, the fellow uh, pocketed the toe and, uh, and left the bar.
3: So you also spoke to a local police officer about the, the toe being stolen, the crime. Uh, and what did he have to say? So I spoke to Constable
5: Jeff Mike, and here's what he told me. He was just really thrilled that it uh, it came to an amicable end with everybody. It it really was a happy ending to the story. You know, the toe did come back, but the toe is worth a considerable amount of money to the downtown hotel. So, um, had charges been been pressed against this individual, it would have been for a considerably large sum of money. Like how much money? Um, well, the, the the downtown hotel estimates that this particular toe was worth about eighty thousand dollars in revenue to the hotel. What? Yeah (laughs) So uh, we were In joking We said it was Maybe like Grand Theft (laughs) Toe Now you did try The cocktail So let's play That tape here
3: Are you ready Misha
5: I think I'm ready You
3: got your drink I got my drink Yeah It's all set
5: All right, Bottoms up Or slow Slow and steady here It's up to (laughs) you
4: Well done Misha (laughs) There's some left Uh oh It's the toe jam. Uh You got to get the toe jam.
3: So um, I have to ask, um, are you a member of the club?
5: I am, in fact, a two-time member of the club. The first time I became a member, I was so thoroughly grossed out that I did not keep my membership card. I thought I'd never need to do this again. Um, And then for the purposes of this story, I uh, had to get reacquainted with the Toe. So I am now officially uh, a member once again of this uh, (laughs) dubious (laughs) dubious distinction. (laughs) Misha, thank you very much. Great. Thank you, Chris. It was great chatting with you.
3: That was Misha Warbanski reporting on the mystery of the Saratoga cocktail in Dawson, Canada. Mill Street Radio is also available as a podcast. You can subscribe, download our shows on your phone, and listen anytime. New shows are available every Friday on Apple Podcasts, Ditcher TuneIn, Google Play, and Spotify. Right now, my co-host Sarah Malt and I will take some of your calls. Sarah, of course, is the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, also author of the book Home Cooking 101. Sarah, how are you?
6: Chris, I'm great, and I'm ready to go.
3: Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Josh from Gilbert, Arizona. How are you? Good. How are you guys? Uh, I think... Sarah, how are you? We're very Okay, good. we're good. I was just <laughs>
6: hey, Josh. So how can we help you?
0: Well, thank you for taking my question, sure. first of all. When I cook and have a specific entree in mind, I still like to make sure that I'm making a, a full meal. So my question for you guys is, are there any rules or guidelines that... You guys follow when putting together a full meal with, like, side dishes and vegetables and just the general guidelines that you use to make a full meal.
3: Yes, I do, which is I never worry about a full meal. I've completely trashed that concept from my repertoire. So uh, I'll do a rice bowl, you know, something on rice. Uh, I made a yellow lentil little curry thing and put that on rice. I'll make a noodle dish with something very simple on it. Even put a fried egg on it with some sesame oil and soy sauce and scallions. My rule is a nice fresh salad and then something else and a glass of wine. I never do worry about sides. And Sarah now is oh she's got that look. Okay. I have to ask I, Josh. I seed the floor.
6: I have to ask Josh an important question. Do you have kids? I don't. Okay. So you're just cooking for adults? Usually, yeah. Well, if you're thinking about nutrition, one of the ways to think is eat the colors of the rainbow. So in terms of the vegetables that you're putting on the plate, just make sure you have different colors. Make sure you have a green something and oh, and please. then another color. So what I do is I focus on one part of the meal. Either it's a vegetable or it's a protein. And then the other two are throwaways. So, so here's a quick way to make a couple of vegetables. Use, right. use the grating disc of your food processor. You can grate beets, peeled carrots, parsnips. And then they take 10 minutes to saute in a skillet. And that's a way to get a quick, it's quick to grate them and it's quick to cook them. And then you add maybe a little splash, sure. of, splash of acid and some toasted nuts. And that's a great side dish. Okay, I'm done.
3: That's the answer he wanted, not the answer I gave I know. That's why I'm side. trying to, I'm trying to. <laughs> Listen to uh, Sarah. Although I
6: agree with Chris. It's fun to throw out all the norms of, you know, we grew up with a starch, a vegetable, and a protein. And, you know, have breakfast for dinner or a soup for supper. And I, think I will that's say... Fine
3: just to show I'm equable here. You can blanch or steam vegetables. And what I often do is make a really interesting, it's not a vinaigrette, it's a dressing, especially from Asian cuisines. If you use toasted sesame oil, soy sauce cut with water, lots of other things, scallions, ginger. So you can just quickly cook greens or vegetables and then it's all in the dressing. And that's how I would think about vegetables. Do them fast and easily and then just have a really interesting dressing. That's a good idea. So we gave for you sure. both ends of the vegetable spectrum. Yeah. Yes.
0: <laughs>
3: yeah. <laughs> anyway, Josh, thanks for calling.
6: Thank you, Josh.
3: Thank you, guys. Yeah. I appreciate it. Sure. Bye. Bye-bye.
6: Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
0: Hi, my name is Kirby.
6: Hi, Kirby. How can we help you?
0: I have a question about pie because all of the questions are always about pie. Okay. Are you a big um, pie maker? Sort of. I came across a surplus of apples this year, and so I'm trying to um, make a pie and freeze it, and I wasn't sure what the best way to go about that was, because normally I would bake the bottom crust, and that doesn't seem right to then put that in the freezer, because I feel like that would mess with the texture of it. So do I freeze the crust first and then put the apples in? Should I freeze the filling separately?
6: No, I wouldn't freeze raw apples no, I wouldn't ever. Okay. You know, generally freezing raw vegetables without blanching or cooking the first is not a good idea because their texture breaks down and they just get real watery. Um, sure. So okay. I would cook the apples. Okay.
3: Well, some apple pie recipes, you have a cooked apple filling, almost like a tart tatin, but I mean, you'd pre-cook it.
6: Right, yeah. that's what I mean. Okay. Completely yeah. saute yeah. the apples and okay. reduce the liquid in them. And then Chris, how would you freeze it?
3: I'm the pie guy. I it's my favorite thing to make. I understand your problem though, and that's why I do applesauce and as you probably do. But uh,
0: yes, lots uh, and lots of applesauce. Lots and lots well, of
3: applesauce. So. But I would say if you pre cook the apples, they're not totally cooked, the pectin sets and then they actually keep some of their texture. And then you could, you know, make a pie fill it and freeze it, defrost it.
6: So now you're talking about raw dough yeah. with the the sure. cooled yeah. filling. Yes. yes. Assemble the whole thing. Yes. And the good thing about pre-cooking the apples is then you don't get that space between the top crust and That's the apples.
3: That's true. Although I happen to right. like the space between them. You, you do? <laughs> I uh, Well, it's kind of cool because then you cut into it and it collapses and it's, I don't know. I, it's, it's like performance art. You know? mm. Okay, you're mm. looking at me like okay. I've lost it. Um, yeah, you can do it. And if you have a ton of apples, but the crust won't be as good. But you can do it. Do you, it, you but think at least-
6: it's because they pick up flavors from the freezer?
3: I actually don't know the answer to that. You just don't like it. My guess is that what happens is the freezer dehydrates. Okay. You lose moisture in the crust, right. and it's just not as good. It'll be a little more crumbly. Won't be as flaky. Mm-hmm. But you know, it's fine. But yeah. as long as you right. pre-cook the apples, that's the key thing. You'll probably be okay. So.
0: Okay. Now, do you feel the same way about any type of? fruit filling specifically you know just to get as much of the moisture out of it as possible before yes Yes. if you were to do the same thing with any other type yes okay all right all right
6: there you go
3: that's the okay
0: thanks Thanks, i will try that thank you guys bye-bye
3: this is mill street radio i'm christopher kimball if you have a cooking failure a conundrum or just a complaint or if you want to try to stump us give us a ring the number is 855-426-9843 that's 855-426-9843 or simply email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
7: Hi there. This is Rhea in Arkansas.
3: How are you? Rhea in Arkansas. I'm
7: doing great. How are you guys? Good. Good. Well, I have a question about pesto. We absolutely love pesto, and it's one of the few green things that my boyfriend will actually eat, so I try to make it as often as I can. (laughs) I make it in a mortar and pestle, but I have a problem with it turning brown. Sometimes it's as I'm actually making it, and it always turns brown when we put it on hot pasta, which is one of our favorite ways of eating it. So we've actually started calling it Chattahoochee Pesto. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that river in Georgia. It's that muddy brown color. Charming. (laughs) Yeah, I know. It tastes great, but it just doesn't look very appetizing. (laughs) So I'm wondering if you guys have any ideas. I tried blanching the leaves. And that does keep them green, but it's really hard to crush them in the mortar and pestle after that, and it just takes more time.
3: Just throw a little Italian parsley in it or arugula to spice it up. But I, you know what? I don't worry about it. I think if it tastes good, yeah. why worry?
7: Yeah, I know. It's just brown. It's supposed to be that pretty green color, isn't it?
6: Well, not really. <laughs> I mean, it is for 10 seconds, you know, as you know. I mean, the other yeah. thing is if you had sort of more room-temp pasta, but... That's not yeah. very tasty.
7: I know, yeah, and that's, we love doing that. I also like putting it on pizza, you know. And, and then, so
3: oh, then it's really bright. Well, Yeah, I, I yeah. Would, I would just yeah. serve dinner by candlelight. I mean, <laughs> then no one's going to really see. I I'd, Someone once said, an Italian cook, Bucciali once told me, he said, properly cooked food always looks good on the plate. So he was against, ah. you know, fooling around with your food Messing because of it visuals. It's so, just going to do it itself. Yeah, you know, Buggiali would just say, don't worry about it.
6: The two of us here, we rarely agree, but I think we agree about this one. Yes. <sighs> what do you mean we rarely
7: agree? Okay, all
3: right. Yeah, I, don't worry about it. Just eat it.
7: Go ahead with the Chattahoochee pesto then. Yes, <laughs> and throw some
6: fresh herbs on top to hide
7: it. Okay, okay. that's a good idea. Okay, thank you okay. so much. <laughs> You're welcome.
3: Bye. <laughs> You're listening to Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball.
8: This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you.
0: For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine.
3: This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. John Mackey is the CEO of Whole Foods Market, also co-author of Conscious Capitalism and his latest book, The Whole Foods Diet which simplifies the scientific health benefits behind a plant-based whole food diet. Let's start with some science. There's a lot of science in the world of health and nutrition. As a matter of fact, we have a contributor to the show, Dr. Aaron Carroll, who talks about this. Uh, Let's talk about a cohort study where, where, for example, in the 80s, uh, adult-onset diabetes became a bigger thing. At the same time, the American diet was being degraded with uh, processed foods. In your book, when you talk about diet and health, et cetera, do you think those cohort studies, in other words, trends, two trends going at the same time, are useful to talk about? Or do you think we really have to look at blind studies where you're actually looking at a specific group of people over a period of time, one against the other?
4: Well, I think they're both, they're both useful. They're both data points. We can't do controlled nutritional studies over any kind of long period of time. its would be unethical to do so, and you couldn't assure compliance. So I think you have to look at the epidemiological studies if you want to see what happens over time. As people say, that doesn't prove it because it's correlation rather than causation, because there are always going to be many factors involved. But still, the trends are pretty clear that Eating a real foods diet that's you know, mostly plant seems to be the one that has the best long-term health outcomes. Then you've got the example of the blue zones, where the longest-lived peoples eat a remarkably similar diet, despite being in geographically dis- divergent areas.
3: So a blue zone is an area in the world where longevity is particularly extenuated. Yes.
4: Yeah, so this is Dan Buettner's work, first done with National Geographic, where he identified five places, first Okinawa... Japan, then Sardinia, Italy, then Icaria, Greece, and Nicoya, Costa Rica, and then Loma Linda, California, where the Seventh-day Adventists are clustered. So his work was the first one that got really good, conclusive documentation on it. Then they did the the lifestyle studies, the nutritional studies, and and, uh, the the information's um, very, very uh, compelling, in my opinion.
3: Let me ask you a hard question. I mean, I'm a huge Whole Foods store proponent. I shop there a lot and we'll get to that in a minute. But one of the things that always worries me is when I go into a produce section, even of Whole Foods, sometimes there's not a lot of flavor. I mean, if if you go to Paris, right, and go to a market and eat a cucumber, it has this wonderful flavor. If I go into even the best stores like Whole Foods. I find sometimes the foods look great, the produce looks great, but the carrots don't have a ton of flavor, the tomatoes don't have a ton of flavor. How hard is it being a retail grocer to find in a sufficient quantity producers of fruits and vegetables that produce uh, not just good-looking things, but things that, A, have a lot of flavor, which I'm concerned with, and also have a lot of micronutrients because it depends on the soil, of course, and how they're grown. Tomatoes grown in Florida and sand you know, just (laughs) there's not a lot of nutrients there. So how do you manage that from a business point of view to deliver flavor and nutrients as well as good looking stuff?
4: Well, of course, I'm not going to say I don't think Whole Foods has delicious food. (laughs) But I do think one of the things is the market wants what it wants and it wants it year round for the most part. So we used to eat by the seasons, you, there was a right. time when tomatoes were at their peak of flavor, and maybe that lasted for just a couple of months. And then, then you'd have ten months where you weren't getting tomatoes unless they were canned or preserved in some way. Uh, but now we can get tomatoes because of our transportation network. We can get tomatoes year-round, or they can be grown in greenhouses uh, in, a, in a in a in a place like uh, New England where they couldn't grow those year-round, but they could in greenhouses now. So. Uh, but that's what people want. People want tomatoes when they want tomatoes, not just when they might be in the season, in the area that they were grown in. So in some ways, it's been a boon for Americans to be able to get fresh produce year-round. But the trade-off, as you've pointed out, is that, well, sometimes those travel long distances. They're picked not at the peak of ripeness. And yeah, some flavor can be lost doing that. So hence the one of the reasons there's a big movement towards local agriculture and farmer's markets to be able to get food as fresh as possible from the source that's not too far away.
3: So before we started this interview, we were talking briefly, and I said, you know, when I walk into Whole Foods, something happens to my brain uh, at the back of the head. There's some – something happens, and I get into a different mindset, and, I, and I'm happy and I'm happy because I like the design of the store. I like, I like the gestalt of the store. I like what it stands for. But there's something else going on, and you obviously have thought about this. How do you get that switch to go off when I'm Whole Foods, all of a sudden I'm in a place I really want to be? What, what is it about Whole Foods besides what you're selling that makes it Whole Foods?
4: Well, one way to think about it, Chris, is that just as our bodies need vitamins and minerals and nutrients, all the different macro and micronutrients that food provides for us if we're going to be healthy. Something people don't think about is that we also need certain values to be expressed in our lives. And one of those values, for example, is beauty. We need beauty. Beauty enlivens us. It's almost as if we metabolize beauty and it makes us feel better when we're around it. Uh, we're often criticized for that because it's like, well, that's, that means Whole Foods is expensive. And perhaps, but the tradeoff is, is you're not getting the beauty, which I believe your soul needs. We feel better when we're in beautiful places and we try to make our stores beautiful. You're also feeling the energy that collectively is being produced by both our team members and the customers that shop there. And that is a feeling that you also metabolize. So beauty and goodness and truth, these are things that we need if we're going to be psychologically and spiritually healthy. We try to create those in whole foods.
3: One of the things I I deal with all the time, and you do too, especially at Milk Street now, is figuring out how people will be cooking in the future. And one way to do this is to say, you know, not tuna salad, right? Or to say uh, kale Waldorf salad. In other words, take things like stroganoff, right. Waldorf salad, tuna salad, things people are familiar with, and then uh, do a makeover to make them healthier. Sure. So do you think there's another way to think about this, that there are other cultures around the world? Uh, I just interviewed someone who has a book called The Palestinian Table, where some of that food is, is just inherently wonderfully healthy, but it's not what we're used to here. Right. So you are... In part, as I am a salesperson, you're trying to sell people on a healthier diet. Do you do that best by giving something they're familiar with and doing a makeover, or by introducing something new, or both?
4: Both it depends on the depends on the individual. Some people, like myself, I like to try new foods. To me, it's an adventure. There's an adventure in exploring the different inter, the cuisines around the world to find new healthy, delicious foods. So that to me, that's a very fun activity. For others though they're they're more they're more picky eaters, they're more they're more security oriented. They don't they're afraid to try something new because perhaps it'll be a bad experience. So making that more familiar to them. If you think about it, when they invented the automobile, it was initially it was called a horseless carriage. Right, because that was right. what people were familiar with. This is a carriage just like you're familiar with, but there's no horses. So when you first come up with something like soy or almond milk, you call it milk right? Because it has the same functionality right. as milk. But eventually what happens over time is it becomes more established. It doesn't need that scaffolding. It doesn't need that crutch. It stands on its own. When I first started eating tofu 30 plus years ago, it was always described as just sort of like a soy cheese. And well, no, now it's tofu. <laughs> so it has its own identity.
3: You know, Amazon has especially in the last two years, has really meant not the death of retailing, but certainly impacted retailing in America. Um, Is the partnership between Whole Foods and Amazon based on the notion that people, one of the areas of retail that would not go away is buying food? I mean, that's that's the one category of retailing you almost have to have, right?
4: You mean buying food in bricks and mortar stores, right?
3: Or is that going to go away too?
4: No, I don't think that's going to completely go away. I think it's going to evolve. I think we're, we're going to reinvent the grocery store. I think that's one of the reasons Amazon wanted to partner up with Whole Foods, and we're excited to partner up with Amazon. They have capabilities we do not have.
3: What is that? Give me an example of reinventing the grocery store Well, without revealing something. Yeah,
4: so the joke is, you know, Chris, I could tell you, but then I'd have to kill right. you. In this case, Chris, I could tell you, but then Amazon would kill me. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so, uh, Give me a hint. Uh, I mean, I think you're going to be able to get whatever food you want, whenever you want it, wherever you want it. That's what's going to happen. Through mobile technology, through delivery services, we're in the middle, or maybe even in the beginning stages, of a major revolution in the way people shop. Look, you can watch every movie you want at home, but... I still go to the movie theater. I watch movies at home and I go to the movie theater. Why? Because I like going to someplace like IMAX and, and I like being in the community of people doing it. Uh, people still go to restaurants. I like to go out. People don't want to just huddle in their homes. But sometimes we do want to huddle in our homes, right? Amazon is pioneering a technology that allows people just to walk into the store, pick things up and leave, for example, be very, very quickly. So I, I think the way I'm trying to hint at it is that... Pretty much whatever you want, you're going to get whenever you want it. I think that's where we're heading.
3: Okay, your book. Let's talk about the book. Uh, everybody knows, as I said earlier, that a, a whole foods, less processed diet's good for you. And the book, I think, does an excellent job of making the case. You have a lot of uh, sort of heroes in the book, people who've, who've come along and, and really added to that conversation. You have examples of people who've changed their lives. Why this book? A lot of books have been written on this. Why this book and why now?
4: Well, um, we wrote The Whole Foods Diet with uh, two doctors or co authors, Matt Letterman and Polday, and and myself. We wrote this book. I, I wrote it. I, this is like a bucket list book for me. I, I felt an ethical obligation to write this book because we have a program at Whole Foods we call Total Health Immersion. And the Total Health Immersion, we take our sickest team members, those who are obese, diabetic, who have heart disease, who have their biometrics are just way, way off the charts with high, really high cholesterol, uh, high blood pressure, things like that. And we've now sent 4,000 people, over 4,000 people through the Total Health Immersions. And I've seen Thousands of people transform their health and their lives and lose, and lose their weight. I mean, I can't go into a store without team members coming up and hugging me because they went through an immersion. It changed their life. So if you know the solution to the health care crisis in America, and I feel like we know the solution to it, I haven't felt an ethical obligation to share it. I mean, it's like I had to put this out there. I can't just be silent. If you see people that are suffering, that are unnecessarily sick, and you you know you can do something about it if people would just listen you, you You want to say it, so i I put it out there, and I feel relieved i mean there's just because now I'm doing what I can do and uh, and hopefully it'll make a difference over time
3: so what part in terms of leading a healthy life does does the culture around the food matter versus just the food?
4: The culture matters tremendously that's the biggest problem are getting people to change their diets. It's because we have a f- fairly toxic food culture in the United States. People eat, I mean, they just eat terrible foods. Right. And that's just a simple fact. We're, we're now 71% of adults are overweight and 38% are obese. And over 50% are, are either diabetic or pre-diabetic at this point. We really have a health crisis. However, when you try to change your diet, you're oftentimes ridiculed or poke fun at and so culture is very important. So to create healthy lifestyle cultures, healthy eating cultures, where people come together and, and break bread and have conviviality and joy in the food, uh, together is partly I think how we evolved. I think humans liked we we tend to have sex in private and we tend to eat food as a group. And we there's something very good for our spiritual beings to share food with people. So the culture is very important.
3: You you are somebody who's devoted their life to something you actually believe in. You've done a lot of good for people. You've been hugely successful uh, on any level you want to rate that. And I, I'm we're both... A, you know, been around a while. And are you happy? I mean, does that make you happy? Or did you you find out at the end of the day, happiness is just about a lot of other things?
4: No, I'm a very happy person. I I really am. And uh, uh, I guess at my age, I I think I figured out a lot of the things that lead to happiness. And if you'll indulge me, I can just... Yes, I'd I'd like a short list. Well, I think we are people that we have purpose in life. And when you're fulfilling a purpose, you you enjoy your life more. If you don't have a purpose, then you tend to be more cynical. So purpose matters. Secondly, obviously, we need love. We need to, to love and be loved. And that's why family's important. That's why friends are important. Thirdly, I would say we need to be grateful. Life is such a miracle, it's such a beautiful thing. It's so precious and we we are just passing through here. We don't live very long. I feel a great deal of gratefulness just to be alive, to be healthy, to be able to to love and to care and and to be loved. I mean it's just it's just amazing. And fourth, I think you have to practice forgiveness in life. If you don't forgive people, you're kind of poisoning your own inner being. You, you nurture these petty grievances, and, they, and you think about them all the time, the way you were wronged or, or how you were cheated. And it's very difficult to be happy when you have that type of, of um, um, sort of an unforgiving mind.
3: That was John Mackey, CEO of Whole Foods Market, also co-author of The Whole Foods Diet. Back in the 1990s, I attended the Natural Products Expo twice per year since I was publisher of Natural Health magazine. It was an odd mix of belly dancers, rice milk ice cream, tofu hot dogs, suits, and true believers who showed up in ponytails carrying their products in burlap sacks. On one hand, everyone was there to sell. On the other, for many of the exhibitors, big business was Anathema. That, of course, reminds me of John Mackey, a true believer who also runs a business as cutthroat as Wall Street. You know, compromise is not a popular notion for true believers, but it just may be the only way to a better future. Right now, I'm heading over to the kitchen at Milk Street to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe. Lynn, how are you?
2: I'm great, Chris.
3: I'm a little suspicious. As usual. As usual. Uh, Vietnamese coffee cake. uh, This recipe, I mean, they don't make coffee cake in Vietnam, for starters. They do have coffee, which is sweetened condensed milk, which is the key factor there. And and I know we use that in the recipe. But this is a bit of a stretch. This is a little crazy nomenclature.
2: Well, I I would take the notion of coffee cake out of your mind. It's really Vietnamese coffee cake. So it's really about the flavors of Vietnamese coffee. So we went to a restaurant in San Francisco called The Slanted Door. It's a Vietnamese restaurant. And they did sort of their spin on a trace leches cake where they took a chocolate chiffon cake and soaked it in cold brew coffee and then topped it with their own homemade uh, condensed milk. So we really liked the flavors there, but we weren't so crazy about the soaking part. Um, So we are going to do something a little bit different with our version.
3: So the soaking part means soaking equals soggy. Is that the problem? I mean, trace leches cake is soaked and is kind of soggy.
2: Right, and there's a fine line between soggy and nicely saturated. And we wanted to kind of just eliminate that problem and do something a little bit different.
3: So uh, you just don't soak it at all, I mean, you just put the sauce on top, right?
2: That's right. Uh, It's also a lot faster to do it this way. The sauce is a really simple sauce uh, where we mix together sweetened condensed milk with espresso powder. And you want to make sure you use espresso powder here. It has a much bolder flavor than, say, uh, instant coffee. Um, It will also dissolve better in the sauce than instant coffee granules, which are a little bit larger than espresso powder. So this is
3: like Vietnamese coffee, then?
2: Exactly. It's it's literally we're trying to mimic a Vietnamese coffee in a sauce.
3: And then anything else on top?
2: The final thing is a dollop of uh, whipped cream that we've added a little bit of mascarpone to. Mm -hmm. Um, That gives it a little bit more body and obviously a little bit richer flavor.
3: So, chocolate chiffon cake, a coffee sauce with sweetened condensed milk, espresso powder, and then whipped cream with mascarpone on top. I've eaten this about 15 times here (laughs) when we were testing the recipe. This has got to be my favorite recipe we've done in the dessert category since the beginning of time. It is very good. Thank you, Lynn.
2: You're welcome. You can find our recipe for Vietnamese coffee cake at 177milkstreet.com.
3: I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, more of your culinary questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. After the break. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first. And that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. That's moe, M-O-W-I, salmon, dot US, to learn more. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time to take some calls with my beloved (laughs) co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah, are you ready?
6: I'm so ready, Chris.
3: Welcome to Mill Street. Who's calling?
9: Hi, I'm Fran.
3: Hi, Fran.
6: Hi, Fran.
9: I was recently in a store buying some half and half, and I noticed a product marked fat-free half and half. And I didn't really have time right then to investigate, but... That just sounded wrong by definition.
3: I would turn on your heel, which you probably did, and run as fast as you can in the other direction. I never buy fat-free. The problem with fat-free is it's highly processed.
6: Yeah, in order to give it that nice texture so you think it's like the full fatters.
3: Like, for example, with yogurt, although I know some people prefer the texture of fat-free or 2%. It's processed, and so you're always better off eating less of whole yogurt than you are. But I, I believe in that product, they obviously have thickeners or fillers, and they probably use corn syrup. Yeah, they use corn syrup. Yeah, it's nasty. It's just a horrible concept.
9: So it's not really a calorie-saving practice, per
3: se? It may be, but I'd rather live.
9: And, you know, (laughs) even if it's calorie-saving,
6: sometimes now they're saying that it's better to eat the slightly higher fat than to eat the no-fat.
9: Yeah. Okay, so, I mean, I mostly use that, like, in beverages or like I did this morning on my hot cereal... But I do have, I think, a recipe or two that include half and half. So I'm thinking it might not behave the same in a baked goods recipe.
6: You mean the fat-free? Right. I would assume it wouldn't. I don't think it would either, no.
9: Okay.
3: This whole thing, by the way, about fat and cholesterol is not entirely nonsense, but it's about 85% nonsense. Okay. Fat got a bad name.
9: Well, it's probably something I'm going to avoid then and save my money on experimenting with it. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, I don't
3: think— All things in moderation.
6: You know, and and also when you look at any label and there's all these additional ingredients, I just would, if you can, just walk away. It's just not a good thing. Very good. Yeah. There you go. Thanks, Fran. Thank you. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.
3: Welcome to Mill Street. Who's calling?
9: This is Bonnie from Denver. Hi, Bonnie. How can we help you? Well, I have a question about liquid measuring cups. I have two glass cups, and as far as I can figure out, they're from different manufacturers. The markings on one have worn away completely, and the other one is threatening to do the same. And besides that, on the cup that I'm now using, the markings on one side are skewed or cockeyed. So, the measurements aren't the same. <laughs> right. And also, it doesn't pour smoothly. Oh. If I don't pour from it just right, yeah. the liquid flows y- you know, down the cup.
3: That's right. Actually, I have, it was interesting. I have a drawer with my measuring cups, and I have a number of sizes, but the two cup Pyrex cups. And I noticed about two months ago that I could not read any of the calibrations on the side, they were completely gone. Exactly. And, and now I had to buy a new one, which was just a few bucks. Exactly. There are measuring cups which do have physical notches, you know, on, on the sides okay. as well. They're usually the plastic ones. Yeah. So you can get a plastic measuring, two-cup measuring cup, which has actual ridges on it so that if the markings start to go, but I think you just have to throw it out and get another one.
6: And my guess is that it's because you're putting them in the dishwasher. I don't blame you.
3: Also, OXO Good Grips makes one, I believe, where you can look down into the cup.
6: Yeah, but those are yeah. mostly plastic. Yes, they and, and that does fade away, oh. too. But I think the two cup glass Pyrex actually I works real well. Yeah. Just I would hand wash. But
3: them. they don't pour. You're right about the pouring. I wanted to go to an engineer to understand pouring yeah. mechanics because you have to do it exactly the right speed.
6: Why would you design a pour spout that doesn't pour? It's like receptionists it who dribbles. hate people. You know, it just doesn't make any it's like sense. Like faulty
3: towers. Yeah, John Cleese. Oh, we yeah.
6: love that show. Yes. An
3: innkeeper hates people. Yeah, yeah. perfect. So, you know what? I would do what I did. I just bought another one. and I like the okay. Pyrex. I like the heaviness of it. I do,
6: too. They're it's well calibrated. Product. It's yeah. correct.
3: Although dry measuring cups, I've found, actually vary.
6: Oh, yes. It's crazy. You have to, you know, I guess maybe use weights. I don't know what to do. You, you weigh your flour. Well, that flour. I do for sure. But in terms of the tablespoons and yeah. teaspoons, that's difficult.
3: yeah that's Well, I would just stick with Pyrex and buy yes. a new one. So. Thanks, Bonnie. Thank you. All right.
6: Well, thank you so much. Yeah. Okay. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye.
3: This is Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time for this week's Milk Street Basic. This week's Milk Street Basic is a question about salt and pepper. Have you ever thought about salt and pepper? Why does salt and pepper go together? Well, salt and pepper are totally different. In fact, here at Milk Street, we like to say it's time for them to get a divorce. Pepper, simply a spice. Salt enhances the flavor of almost everything. So we looked around the world and discovered that other places don't use salt and pepper. In fact, in the Middle East, they use salt and cumin. Cumin is the pepper of the Middle East. So here at Mill Street, we've decided to ditch the notion of salt and pepper. We use pepper when it makes sense, but our go-to combination is salt and cumin. One way to do this is to get a grinder, fill it with salt and cumin, and you're good to go, and it adds wonderful flavor to almost any dish. Over the years, dozens of TV viewers have noted that I like to lick raw batter from a spoon, and they complain that raw eggs are, in fact, dangerous. But it's a risk I'm willing to take. However, to finally quantify the risk of eating raw eggs, I turn to our regular contributor, that's Dr. Aaron Carroll. He's professor of pediatrics at Indiana University School of Medicine, also a frequent contributor to the New York Times Upshot column. Dr. Aaron Carroll, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Uh, What do you have up your sleeve this week? I thought we might talk about eggs. I'm for them. If, you, if you're interested,
1: I'm pro eggs too. But yeah. I, I, unfortunately, too many people in the country are not pro egg, and that's a real
3: problem. Really, is this because of cholesterol? Is this because of what? I think it's for a variety of
1: reasons. I mean, the most popular reason, certainly for a long time, has been cholesterol. But people are also afraid that they think they're somehow dirty, and that you know it's the kind of thing that's going to give them a disease if they if they're not super duper careful about it and make sure that they're cooked until they're. You know, burnt basically, but cholesterol seems to be the
3: biggest issue. Well, it's interesting because I, I do scrambled eggs the French way. The French refer to them as snotty, which means they're they're loose uh, and wet. And when I cook for other people, if I ever serve them eggs like that, they quietly <laughs> move over to the garbage can and throw them out. They they're scared to death of eggs that are not fully cooked.
1: Yeah, I mean, and I—I I mean, I think I can get to the point where you know I have kids. We make cookies, and they're—they're they're totally afraid of touching, uh, the batter at this point. At least my wife is, uh, because they think they're all going to get salmonella. And you know, there was a time when there were outbreaks in the United States with respect to salmonella from—from from eggs, mostly from the shells, uh, because the chickens were infected. It wasn't actually right. the eggs inside themselves. It was often the shells. But we've done a pretty good job of getting a handle on the salmonella outbreaks. And, you know, scientists at this point have gone through and looked at what are your actual risks of getting salmonella. And eggs are remarkably clean these days. So by 2010, the chance of an egg being actually infected with salmonella was down to about one per 10,000 eggs. And that means that like 0.012% of the eggs might be contaminated with salmonella. But even then, if you come in contact with it, Almost no one is going to get sick. If you do get sick, even ninety-four percent of people who get salmonella will recover completely without any medical care at all. Of the five percent that visit a doctor, almost none are actually really sick, and almost no one, you know, in the United States ever really dies of it. So, the truth of the matter is that if you if you could eat one raw egg every week for a hundred years, which no one's going to do, you'd still have almost no chance of ever coming into contact with an egg with salmonella. Even if you did come into contact, you likely wouldn't get sick. Even if you did get sick, you probably wouldn't even notice. This is one of those things that we panic about, and it has almost no chance of actually becoming true.
3: So here's my question. Uh, I've been around a while, and back in the 50s and 60s, Eggs were our friends, right? I mean, there was no problem. What was the point? Was there a scare? Uh, Was this something uh, another industry did to reduce sales of eggs?
1: It was cholesterol. Cholesterol was the big thing. So in the 60s and then the 70s, we really became convinced that cholesterol was the link to heart disease. And therefore, what we ate with respect to cholesterol must be linked to heart disease. And the USDA decided we should limit our intake of cholesterol to about 300 milligrams a day. That's a problem because one egg has about 220 milligrams of cholesterol. So just a two egg omelet puts you over the limit. You know, forget a three egg omelet. That should never happen. And because of this, we were told over and over, like you have to eliminate these cholesterol-containing foods from your diet. And eggs were the big one that everybody noticed. We yeah. were all convinced to eat egg-white omelets, which, personally, I think are an abomination against nature. We've um, yeah. all. And we 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 changed everything about the way that we looked at eggs and ate because we didn't want to get high cholesterol. But then, good studies started to show us that there's almost no right. link between dietary cholesterol and serum cholesterol, or the amount of cholesterol that's in your blood, for the vast majority of people. They did randomized controlled trials where they would take people and either have them eat three extra eggs a day or not for a month and then check their cholesterol. And it turned out that again, for 70% of people, there's almost no link whatsoever between the dietary cholesterol that you eat And the amount of cholesterol that's in your blood. And even for those 30%, it's a very small link. So that the vast, vast, vast majority of what you can do about your cholesterol has almost nothing to do with the amount of cholesterol you eat. The USDA has finally recognized this. In the 2015 guidelines, they finally uh, said that cholesterol is no longer a nutrient of concern. But but again, Mm -hmm. that was just 2015. And it still takes a long time for that kind of stuff to permeate into the collective consciousness.
3: So my question is, was this a commercial windfall that was designed by the food industry to create a new category of foods, or they just took advantage of, of some bad studies?
1: I think this one was, was less than an industry was trying to demonize eggs than an industry got demonized because science was wrong.
3: But science, <laughs> we, we say this on the program all the time, science is wrong a lot of the time. And, and, oh, yeah. And why, how is that possible?
1: So it's possible because we make these leaps sometimes because we, we see associations or because we want to make neat stories without having all the evidence. So there is some evidence that, that cholesterol in your blood, certainly you know levels of bad cholesterol, can lead to problems in your blood vessels, which can lead to plaque forming, which can lead to serious heart disease. People then made the intuitive link that, that what I eat with respect to cholesterol must be related to to what's going on in my blood and that's where we fell down again i think it's also because we we see relationships we see sometimes people that eat tons of cholesterol might also have high levels of heart disease, but it turns out that the the people that eat high levels of cholesterol might also smoke more, might also eat many other things which are unhealthy, and it could be those links which are related to heart disease, and no direct causal link between the cholesterol that I'm eating and actual heart disease.
3: Well, on this show, you've proven, I guess, that we should uh, drink coffee, because that's good for us. Uh, Wine and other alcohol is is good for us. Uh, Eat some eggs. Uh, You're listening to the right show if you want to enjoy yourself. Absolutely. I'm here to help. (laughs) Dr. Eric Carroll, thank you so much. Thank you. That was Dr. Eric Carroll, professor of pediatrics at Indiana University School of Medicine, also a frequent contributor to the New York Times UpShot.com. We are a fearful people. Drink 8 glasses of water per day, don't eat raw eggs, chew your food slowly, and of course use hand sanitizer at every opportunity. You know, there's got to be some sweet spot between wearing a seatbelt and hand sanitizer. Daniel Boone lived to be 86 years old, despite spending months in the wilderness, being adopted by the Shawnee after having to run the gauntlet, and, according to one account, being attacked by a panther while standing his ground. I don't think Mr. Boone would have been a likely candidate for hand sanitizer. Then again, maybe he would have lived to be 100. That's it for this week. If you just tuned in and missed our show, fear not, you can listen to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, or Spotify. Remember to subscribe to the show. you automatically get every single show downloaded to your phone each week. If you want to learn more about Milk Street, head to 177milkstreet.com. You can download each week's recipe, subscribe to our magazine, watch our first season of Milk Street Television, and order our new cookbook, The Milk Street Cookbook. Thanks for listening, and happy Halloween.
7: Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive Producers Melissa Baldino and Stephanie Stender. Producer Amy Padula. Associate Producer Carly Helmetag. Senior Audio Engineer Douglas Sugarts. Senior Audio Editor Melissa Allison with help from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. Audio Mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media. Production Help Debbie Paddock. Our theme music is by 2Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Eggloft. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.